You're listening to Westside Church. For more information, visit us at westsideinfo.com. Wonderful to be here with you on this lovely day. We are going to be continuing in our series in Genesis, building on foundations, building a firm foundation in God's Word, beginning with the foundational book of Genesis. Uh, Last week, we were on Genesis 1 and really highlighting in on that idea of the spiritual colliding with the physical and how there are going to be things that are really difficult to work through because we don't necessarily have the ability to do so. And so we really have to rely on God um, and our dependence on Him and the faith we have in Him to walk us through that. Last week, we highlighted in that God is in control. There is an order to His world and to your life and that God sees you. And we're really actually going to hone into God's order today as we go through Genesis 2. We're going to be looking at God's intentions for mankind, um, what is it intended for us to do while we're here on this earth. Um, what's interesting, I had a little note here, because there's, there's actually too much information to go over it all, so a lot of this is just going to be like a little a tidbit and hors d'oeuvre. Um, and then I give, I'm giving a lot of scriptural references at the end for you to be able to have the opportunity to go and dig into later if you have more time and if something really piques your interest. But there was too much information this week. I spent hours and hours of reading commentary. It hurt my brain. Um, I was very, very, I was actually physically tired after the amount of reading I did. Um, but it's good things. And that's what happens when we start talking about the foundations, things that are going to spread out to all of Scripture. And actually, when you start really studying the book of Genesis and you get a lot of this language, particularly the garden language, the how God intended for things to be set up, you'll start to notice it in the rest of Scripture as well. These things that are meant to trigger that thought in your brain, oh, that's just like then, that's just like then. It's designed that way. God has an amazing pattern in his word. And his design for humans, uh, which is interesting, was one of those little, little tidbits. We were always meant to be here. We were always meant to be on the earth. And our final destination will still be earth. It's an interesting misconception out in culture right now. It's one of our cultural myths is that eternity will be in heaven. Now, what happens in between your death and eternity is up for some debate. So I'm not going to argue about that with anybody. But the final destination, as we find in Revelation, is that when the old earth, the one we're on right now, passes away, all the earth and the heavens, it's going to pass away. Everyone's going to stand before God and be judged. Whoever's name is written in the book of the life will be living forever with him on the new earth, with a new heavens. And out of the heavens will come the holy city that God has prepared, and that's where he will dwell with mankind forever. This is, this is where we're meant to be. This was always God's intention. Mankind messed it up for a long time. We're still in the messed up part. God is going to redeem it fully at the end. It will be restored to as he always desired for it to be. So for this week, if you were able to grab onto anything else as your final takeaway is this. God wants you to have an abundant life. 
He wants you to have an abundant life while you're here on this earth. But in order to have that abundant life, you must do things the way God has designed. You must follow God's wise pattern, and you must look at abundance the way God looks at abundance. So that would be very different than a worldly idea of abundance. A worldly idea of abundance is usually um, associated with possessions and finances. God's abundance has to do with the life you're living, the people that are in it, the experiences you have here on this earth, and he desires you to have that abundant life. But we're going to have to walk through this life the way God intended. So with that in mind, that's what we're going to keep re referencing back because we're going to hold on to for scripture today. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 1. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in creation. We're going to find a lot of repetitive things in these first few chapters. Things that are repeated over and over again. You kind of look at that, God, I, I got the point the first time you said it. But it's actually repeated for a reason, so that you have that response. So it sinks in. So you're thinking, why did this say this over and over again? And there are going to be some things in here that we should ask the question, why did you say that at all? What was the point of highlighting in on that particular thing? Because there are no wasted words in Scripture. There's no frivolous, and there was this, and there was that, and there's no details that aren't meant to be there. They're, not meant, they're all meant for you to be seen and pondered. And so this particular one, the repetition here, is actually a setting up for how God intends man to go through life as well. I'm going to dig into that more later, but a lot of these are just piquing your interest for now. It's a little bit of a tease. The next verse says, These are the generations of the heavens. And the earth, when they, create, when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made them, made the earth and heavens. That's an interesting phrase. These are the generations. I had just glossed by this every other time I read this. I had just assumed everything was created, and that's just kind of a summary. This is it all. But it actually appears ten times in Genesis. And never once in the other nine times is it used as a summary. It's always used as a beginning statement. It's talking about what's coming next in the scriptures, which says something different than how we interpret this here. Because it's talking not just about the earth, because we're about to see mankind being created and the animals and the birds and everything that comes up out of the earth being created. But it says the heavens and the earth. So what is going on here? And there are three options. One, this is the one exception. This is the only time it's going to be mentioned here, it's a summary, which scripture's not really like that. So it's very unlikely that that's the case. Two, this is a culminating statement of what is to come after this in the rest of scripture is what's going to happen in God's created universe. This is everything that's coming next. This is the generations of the heavens and the earth. Because every other time it's said, it's actually of someone's family. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Shem. These are the generations of Japheth. It's always talking about a particular family. And this is the earth and the heavens, everything that's coming next. And the third thing this could be is much more in the sense of talking about the next two chapters in particular. 
the generations of the heaven and the generations of the earth. And it's going to really highlight in on Genesis 3 when we are introduced to the snake. A little bit of a tease for next week. We should not read Genesis 3 and go, yeah, talking snake, that's normal. (laughs) That should cause questions. It's become a mythological fairy tale okayness in our society. Yeah, the, the garden, talking snake, normal. But it's not. It's not a normal thing because it's a spiritual being, a heavenly being. And it talks about the snake's offspring, the generations of the heavens, the generations of the earth, things to consider as we look forward. I'm not going to delve into that right now, but a lot of you are peaked. I can see it. (laughs) When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground, and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. It wasn't so much the fact that God breathed into a man and made him alive and he's just a bunch of dust that piqued my interest in this passage, but more so the reason why there was no bush of the field and no, what is, sorry, the exact phrasing, no bush of the field and no small, sorry, I mixed those up, bush of the field and no small plant of the field was yet sprung up. Why? He actually gives a reason. He says, well, there's no rain. That, that makes sense. It's not going to rain. It's not going to sprout them up. But it does say the whole land was watered. So that's not the problem here. And it says there was no man to tend it. That was an interesting little note there. Why, even, why is that associated with there being plants on the earth? And we have to consider every spring... What happens? If you have any amount of land in this area, what happens in the spring? The weeds are everywhere. And if you let them grow untamed and out of control, I literally had weeds in my backyard that were as tall as me and were that thick around. I had to attack them with a lawnmower at a 45 degree angle to knock those suckers down. They grow unmanageable, untamed. They create an unhabitable space when there is no man to tend it. And God's design is order. So we're not going to just let that go until we have someone to keep it. It's such little details in God's design that we should grow to appreciate what he's doing. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. We've talked about every tree right there. They've all been covered, everything that's good. But we're going to highlight it on some specific things here now. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And just... I'm just going to say that real quick. We're going to move right on. What? Wait, what? Why? You just said all the good trees were there. Why are you talking about those? 
things yet to come. They should pique our interest. We should be asking, Lord, why? Why are they even there? Bad things came about because of this. Why are they even there? We will talk about that one later. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, and where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bedelium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is, Gi- is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. I feel like the Euphrates is a bit neglected here. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Now, you would think with such a clear description of where Eden is, we'd be able to find it. Because there are four specific rivers that all have the same connection in some sorts. And yet, we're going to put up a map. We don't know where two of those rivers are. Because over time, the names of things change. Two of them haven't. So if we can put up that map real quick. And that's the Tigris, which is purple, and the Euphrates, which is the reddish-orange color. They haven't changed the name, and they're still there. But other things happen over time. It's not just a change of names, but things dry up. And there might not be an actual river there to see anymore. At the time this was written, they would have been known things. But now there's just a big guess because they're not there. Or they don't have the same name. And so some people have guessed up in northern Iraq where that first little orange bubble, perhaps it was here because there are a couple of rivers that fit the bill. But then there are other spaces down here in um, right between Iran and Iraq Well, it could be there because there are some dried up riverbeds heading into Saudi Arabia. And then if we go over into Iran, which this region was at one time called Kush, but then the region most commonly known as Kush is down just southeast of Egypt. So could it be the, could it be the Nile, one of those rivers? It's a big guess. The thing is, we don't know exactly where they are, but that's not a, that's actually not the point of what it's mentioned. There's a lot of descriptions that are associated with these and Eden. They're to create a picture of what was around them, of this abundant and beautiful area filled with rich things in the land. And that it all comes from one source. That's actually the highlighting feature here. It all flows out of Eden. It flows out of God's domain where he meets earth, where he is with mankind. That is where life flows out of. That is the ultimate point of all of this. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. That particular passage, spoiler, the man doesn't die on the day he eats the fruit. That should cue us into something. Our preconceived notions about exactly what something means in the scriptures might not be what they exactly mean. Because I read that and I think the fruit's poisonous. And it's going to kill you the same day you eat it. But that's not what happens. And I don't think 
someone was careless about what they were writing either. But when I read it, what I thought it meant isn't what it meant. It isn't what a lot of us thought it meant when we first read that. In the day you will eat of it, surely you will die. That's poisonous fruit. Don't eat that. But he doesn't die on that day. He's not going to die for a long, long time. But the fact that he eats the fruit is why he's going to die. We have to be careful when we're reading the scripture that we don't read what we want it to be. We put it before the Lord and ask what it is. Lord, show me what this means so I don't misinterpret it so that I can clearly understand your words. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is the first time something is declared is not good. It is not good for man to be alone. It is not good to be by yourself. It is not good to have things below and things above and no one you can relate to. I'm sure many of you have been in that situation in your life where you have no peers. It's very lonely. It's not a good state to be in. It's not a good mental state to be in. You can't talk to anybody about what you're going through. You might have a boss. You might have people that answer to you. You might have kids, and you might, but you don't have anyone that you can relate to. It's not good for man to be alone. Now, what's important to note here, we're going to talk about just a moment, is that God didn't just make another man. The fact of being alone isn't you just need a buddy. No, part of being complete in humanity is to have both perspectives, both attributes of God. The fullness of God's image comes in male and female. Not that everyone has to be married, but we need both perspectives moving through life and having dominion over this earth. We need both parts contributing and being a part of it. It's not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to not be complete in this sense. I'm not tying that word complete to marriage. I'm tying it to male and female doing this together. There will be commentary on marriage here, but note God made the male and female equal in dominion. We have differing roles as we engage with each other, particularly within marriage and as we go about doing things and serving the Lord, and that's as God set up. And we say, okay, Lord, we see what you've said. We're going to abide by that. But we are equal in humanity. We are equal in dominion of this earth. And although we may have differing roles, so we see very clearly in Scripture, men are called to be elders and women are not. Does that mean the elders of this church don't ever ask their wives' opinion? No, of course we do, because it would be so unwise not to. To think that, well, we are the elders of this church, and God has called us, and I am anointed. 
what answers could you possibly have? That would be so foolish. Because we're complete when we work together, male and female. So God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woe man. (laughs) Because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Why is that? there. We're in the information age. We take information for granted. Of course I should have all the details I could possibly have. That has not been common throughout all of history. So why is that there? Why is it specifically mentioned? As the, that's the last line of this chapter. That's the last line of this major thought of the creation of people together, is that they were naked and not ashamed. Why is it there? not going to tell you in this exact moment, but we're going to get to it. We will talk about it today, but I want you to be thinking about it. I want you to read your Bible and be piqued and ask questions. God say, God, why? Because he will answer you. We should understand. We should know. We should dig. We should be curious. God has made such a wonderful world for you to live in and to understand and know and experience. He's got answers, but they must be sought after. They must be found. One of the big things we're going to hit on is they must not be seized. They must be discovered, experienced, walking with God to them. What we're talking about in this chapter is actually the foundations of society that God is setting up here. And I found five major pieces that form a, the basis stru- basic structure of society within this chapter for us, what is being set up. And the very first one, the very first part of it is your life needs balance. You cannot be all work. You cannot be all play. There must be a balance to this. The second thing is that God has a world for you to experience. We are meant to discover. We are meant to learn. We are meant to explore. The third thing is your life should be full of worship in the correct way of worshiping God. Your life should be defined by good work. Work is good. Work is from the beginning. Work is intended. Work is supposed to be fulfilling, and work should bring you joy. That's its intent. That's part of God's design for you to have busy hands, not idle hands. The phrase idle hands or the devil's playground is accurate. You need something to keep your hands busy with because you get into trouble when they're not. And the last part of the foundation of society for us is the family structure. 
the healthy coming together of man and woman to form a family so that society can continue. Society can be established and raised up in a healthy, God-honoring way. So beginning with balance, the seventh day. When it reads in this passage, it's different than every other day described. It's not described as having an evening and a morning. That difference should immediately go, that's why. Because every other day, there was evening, there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day, so on and so forth. We get to day seven, that's not there. The intent is that this is how things are meant to be from this point forth. This isn't ended. It was never meant to be ended. We were meant to live in God's rest. The last creative moment out of nothing is done. God's rested from it, and he's exampling to us. There was work, and now there's rest. And I've got this wonderful world and whole universe for you to experience and know. Let's go check it out together. That was meant to be forever. And it was deemed holy from the start. This didn't, the whole idea of the Sabbath didn't just come around when the law came around as another rule to follow. This was from the very beginning. God established it as holy. And it should ask that question, what makes something holy? There are two things. One, if God is there, it's holy. When Moses talked to God in the burning bush, he was just on a mountain next to a bush, but he said, take off your sandals, you're on holy ground because God is present. God's physical presence on earth makes it holy. And the second thing that makes it holy is God says it's holy. We don't get to decide that when it's holy and when it's not. God deems it holy, it's hallowed. And we need to respect that. And we need to honor that. We need to hold it in holy reverence. God deemed the seventh day holy. I'm not going to belabor that point. We did a whole preach on that recently. Out of Exodus 20, 8 through 11, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to your Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now, keep in mind, this isn't the last thing God did. He didn't rest and say he was done. We are not theists who believe that God designed everything, took the great bowling ball and went, let's see how it goes. <laughs> see you at the end. It's not what's going on. God is active with us today. This is the last creative work of something out of nothing. Creation is done, but God is not. Amen. When we read the passage, Colossians 1, 15 through 17, and it talks about in him and through him all things were created, and he holds all things together. It's more than poetic. It's actually happening. If you kind of nerd out about these things like I do, Type in a Google search or Yahoo, whatever you like. Why don't protons fly apart in the nucleus? And watch the video. There's a guy who does a really good job of dumbing down subatomic physics. 
And I've looked into this from time to time, and still, even with that really well dumbed down level, <laughs> but talking about, okay, I'm going to step back a tiny bit. Everyone's used magnets, right? At least have a familiarity with it. They, they stick together. It's crazy and amazing. The positive sticks to the negative. This is the electromagnetic force happening. It's a major force in our entire universe. It keeps things the way they should be. But you know when you take that magnet sticking, sticking together and you flip it around and you try, what happens? They repel each other. The positives repel the positives. And the negatives repel the negatives. Well, every atom, so even smaller than every cell in your body, every atom has a core. And that core is made of neutral, no charge, and positive charges. Well, what happens when you bring positive things together? They fly apart. So why aren't they doing that? We have a fundamental law of our universe that causes them to fly apart. And they don't. And this is the, it's called, the, the, the descriptions are getting much, it feels to me much less scientific the more we go on. It's the strong force. It's very strong. <laughs> it's much stronger than electromagnetism. Far stronger. And we can't exactly figure out why. There's some guesses why. But we do know that the more you pull it apart, the stronger it gets, forcing it to stay together. It's the amazing things God's doing. And God had an intended state of this earth. He had something he had designed that he wanted us to experience, to enjoy, to be with him and walk through. And it was beautiful. It was a beautiful place. Just picture the scene. There are certain things that were mentioned here. I didn't know what they were. Did any of you know what bdellium is? couple of nods. Bdellium is a resin. It's a gum resin, kind of like myrrh that they use in perfumes. It smells really good. So it's talking about this area. It smells really good. And every plant and every tree that is delightful to look at is there. It's beautiful. There are trickling, rushing, flowing waters coming out of it. There's gold. Gold. That's good. All around, it's a beautiful, lush, delightful place to live in. This is God's design, and it's full of life, life everywhere. I was walking with my kids up in Tahoe the other day, and there's this um, trail where the salmon, they run along the stream there. They're not running right now because the water is too low. Pray for rain. But you can walk through the marshy area around it. And it just reminded me as I was looking at that it's teeming with life. There's so much of it everywhere. Even in the marshy little swamp, it's everywhere. It's full of life and vibrancy in this world. And it's full of knowledge. It specifically mentioned this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This world, this whole world is full of things to discover. Just think about then to now what we've learned about things that have always been. They've been there since the beginning. All these new discoveries, 
We've just now found it out. It's not new. It's as old as the world itself. What we have learned. There's so much to know, so much to experience, so much to see, but we're meant to do it that way. We're meant not to seize it for ourselves. The example of the trees is both figurative and literal. I do believe they were literally there, but they're there for a figurative reason as well. How are we meant to encounter the world? How are we meant to experience things? With God, not apart from him. We don't do things to circumnavigate God. We do them with God. And the rest of Scripture will continuously point us back to this moment. When we think about the Garden of Eden, we should also be thinking about the tabernacle, and we should be thinking about the temple, because Eden is God's template. Think about the tabernacle and the temple. They're set up a specific way. You have the outer courtyard, then you have the inner courtyard, and then you have the Holy of Holies. And there's these concentric circles moving ever downward towards a central point where God is. That's the whole point of the Holy of Holies. That's where God is. And we have Eden, we have the garden, we have the tree of life. And the tree itself doesn't give life. We know from chapter one, God is the source of life. This is where God is. And the portrait is intended to remind us of the garden. When it talks about the manna out of Numbers 11.7, it's referred to as being like bedellium. This is the only two times in Scripture that you will see that word, the garden and the manna. It's a reminder. When we read about the water from the rock, we read of Psalm 78.15-16. It's talking about rivers of water and life in the wilderness. What was the world beforehand? It's wild and waste. And what has God done? Life-giving waters coming out of this. When we read about the gold overlay out of Exodus 25, literally gold on everything, bejeweled madness going on here in the tabernacle and the temple, is to remind us of the gold that was good in that region. The lampstand itself is shaped like almond blossoms, It's to remind us of the beautiful plants. The robes have pomegranates hanging off them to remind us of the trees. Everything is pointing back to God's intended design. As you'll read through scripture, you're gonna start to pick up on these things. Hey, that's an interesting language. Why would they have said it that way? They're trying to cue you back. It's intentional. Allow yourself to actually turn back and reread it at that time to get the fullness that scripture offers you. And God has an intended relationship with man, a relationship of worship. The, throughout all scripture, we will see this phrase, I will be their God and they will be my people. That's God's intent. He will be God. We will not. The inversion of that has got us into a lot of problems, trying to be God ourselves. I will be God. You be the people. It'll all be good. People will be dependent on the Lord, realizing that life originates from Him. Wisdom originates from Him. The beginning of the knowledge is the f- beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord. There are too many scriptures for me to go through all of them. They're there for you to look at later. 
And this one's important, and this one's probably the hardest thing that people deal with. People will be given a choice. You'll be given free will. Whenever I have anybody who's younger that has a struggle, it's always, usually always with this. The fact that people can choose. The fact that God, there's usually the, the overarching question, but it's not the real question of, why do so many terrible things happen in this world? Because people can choose. So that goes to the heart of the question, why then do people get to choose? It's a good, honest question. What is the result if you can't choose? Slavery. Robots. Can you actually love if you can't choose whether or not you love? Is that love? Can you actually be obedient if you don't have the choice to not be obedient? No, you're just following a code at that point. Think about your computer. You can program it. Can you actually have a relationship with that? Can it actually love you? No. It might be a mockery of these things, but it's not real. Without choice, we lose what it means to be in God's image, to be able to choose Him over ourselves. And I know the struggle can often be, why would, but there's so many terrible things that have come out of that. Why even hit the go button? And whenever that question comes up, I'm, I'm glad it wasn't their choice to not hit the go button. But we must realize that we don't have the perspective God does. We are all but children. Consider children and what they think is good and evil. You didn't give me enough candy. You're such a terrible parent. You didn't let me stay up later. You're mean. We didn't get to go to McDonald's after church. You don't love me. Now, these are obviously more lighthearted and really diminishing compared to the really terrible things that have happened in this world, but it's also a matter of perspective. To the child, they are just as big. To us, we see these in a very magnified way. We don't think like God does. That's right out of Isaiah. My thoughts are not like your thoughts, and my ways are not like your ways. As high as the heavens are from the earth are my thoughts from your thoughts. And that's hard to accept when we're here. And we don't understand, which is why we must have faith in God that he does. Faith in his perspective is good. And he will give us a choice, and we will deal with the results of that. Out of Proverbs 1, 29 through 33, it says, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way. That's there purposefully. It's to remind us the first choice. And have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away, and the complacency of fools destroys them. But whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. We will be given a choice. 
Now God has not only intention for his relationship with us, he has just an intention for us. What he expects us to do while we're here. The good work set before us. We're meant to enjoy work, something to do, something to partner with him in creation, in cultivation, in creativity. And it was meant to be enjoyed. A good thing. It's actually so rewarding, even though it can be such a frustration when you have to, if anyone who has any amount of property, whether it be a third of an acre, a quarter of an acre, or 10 acres, when you get it all in order, it's satisfying. Deeply so. Right now is really frustrating when you get that leaf blower and you blow off the yard and it just looks so beautiful and then you turn around and all the leaves have fallen right behind you again and it has returned to disorder. <laughs> Partnering with God in returning things to order is deeply satisfying and it will always be that way because it's God has intended it. If you, none of you have ever grown anything, even something small, I would encourage you to do so. Plant a little seed and how rewarding it is to watch it grow even though you didn't do anything. I put water on it. Look what I did. But it's deeply rewarding to watch that life burst forth. This was a God wanted to partner with us in. And he wanted us to have fellowship, a unity, camaraderie, us doing this together, not just have someone above and just someone below, but someone to do it with. Someone to enjoy this time with. And this is the part that I was going to, I did not talk to, that very last line. God intended man to be naive. He intended for us to be innocent. That knowledge of good and evil was a burden we were never intended to carry. We seized it. We were meant to go through this world with faithfulness like a child. When Jesus says this, it's purposeful. We are meant to know nothing but trust, nothing but goodness, nothing but life, nothing but joy. That was the intent, that we go through the wor this world in a naive way. And we use that word almost as an insult now. They're so naive. They really need to get a grip on reality. That wasn't God's design. That wasn't a part of the good thing he put in place. We weren't meant to be ashamed. But we were meant to live forever. There were two trees in that garden, two choices to make, eternal life with God or a seizing of knowledge. Ourselves or the Lord. We were meant to be with him forever from the beginning because if we'd never eaten from the one tree, we for sure would have eaten from the other. Life forevermore with the Lord. And from the beginning as it is now, you only get eternal life through God. You will not find that fountain of youth on this earth. No matter how many searching for times of searching for Eden or the Holy Grail, or any of those things, you're not going to find that here. You're not going to find a way around the Lord because it is within him that life comes. Just as the beginning, as it is now. How do you get eternal life now? John three sixteen. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world. And the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the source of life, and it will always be so. It is only through the Lord. And the last part of the foundational for our society is God's intention for marriage. One, it was meant to be complementary. We were not meant to be the same. Thank goodness men and women are not the same. Thank the Lord we are not the same. We are meant to complement each other. The traits and attributes and natural giftings of one and the other are different in such wonderful ways. We are meant to complement one another, to come together with our differences. And it was meant to be a partnership. We're meant to work together, build this life together, raise this family together. Not that's your role and this is my role. We're meant to do this together. It's not necessarily the same how it looks, but you're meant to build your life together. When we read out of Proverbs 31, verses 10 through 31, it describes the model woman. That model woman, it doesn't say, and she cooks in the home and that's all she does. It is not what that says. No, it says she buys and sells property. She runs a business out of her own house. She organizes and keeps her home managed well. She buys, she sells, she raises up her household well. She is a joy to her husband. It's an active, amazing, fearsome woman that is described here. That's the ideal woman that is described out of Proverbs. Someone who is partnering in this life, in this dominion, working together with her spouse. Let's return to scripture to define how we're to do these things, not to culture to define how to do these things. And it's meant to be permanent. That's not meant to be a commentary on anyone who's been divorced. None of you that have been divorced wanted to be that way. We all know that. That was never anyone's intent when they got married. You know, this is going to be good for a few years, and I think we're going to split. That's no one's desire. And it's most of not, not the Lord's. He always meant it to be permanent. Out of Proverbs 6, 20 through 23, it says, My son, keep your father's commandment and forsake not your mother's teaching. Mom and dad are in this together. Bind them on your heart always. Tie them around your neck. When you walk, they will lead you. When you lie down, they will watch over you. And when you awake, they will talk with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the teaching a light, and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life.
God wishes for you to have an abundant life. He desires it for you. He's made a way for you. We simply have to follow, simply have to follow after him. Out of John 10, 10 through 11, it says, the thief only comes to kill, steal, and destroy. But I came that they may have life and life abundantly. Amen. Amen. Amen.